when a country goes through a difficult time, a season of uh, low economy, um, a longer season of, of things not working well, uh, it oftentimes affects a life of cities, and certain cities are affected uh, more than others. In our own country in the last few years, as, as our nation's economy has struggled in various parts, and various industries have struggled, uh, I am reminded of uh, some of the challenges uh, cities like Detroit have gone through when the auto industry went through a low time. Uh, cities like Detroit had a very difficult time, and uh, neighborhoods would... Uh, would decrease in value, and, and crime would increase, and violence, and things would just would not work well. And in such times, the hope of people, the hope of, of the nation is, what can we do to try to restore the life of, of cities that are struggling? In the life of this nation, there's been times when, when the inner city has turned to be not a good place, uh, an un, unhealthy place, an unsafe place. And there's now cities in which the inner city is being rejuvenated and restored, and, and whole neighborhoods are becoming safer, and new economies being built up, and people are starting to gather back and start to migrate back to the, to the cities, and life in the, in the city has become now very expensive, and we see this in our own city, how the city of Austin, the economy has grown so much, uh, so, so out of bounds that it's hard to actually come back to be closer to the city. Why? Because the city is going through a, a time of experiencing renewal. And we see our, our nation flocking and, and moving into the city of Austin, so much so that I heard even this past week that we hope as people are thinking of moving more and more to our city that we would push them away to, to other places so that the city doesn't become so crowded. Well, all that to say, the life of, of the city oftentimes reflect what's going on around us. Well, in the, in the Scripture, you might be surprised that the spiritual reality of God's people is at times described through various pictures. Sometimes it's described through the picture of a family. And it's supposed to be a well-working family. Uh, it's also described as a life of a, of a flock. where, like sheep where the people of God are cared for tendered, uh, tenderly and have good shepherds who, flee, who feed God's flock together, and the flock grows and is well-nourished. But one of the pictures that describes the, the, the well-being, the people of God flourishing and growing and, and being revitalized is the picture of a city, of a city that is being restored, of a city that's being renewed, of a city who's, that, is, that is being uh, totally turned over and made into a, into a beautiful, glamorous a luxuriant city with a great economy that attracts the trade of the world. Well, friends, this morning as we look at God's Word, we will see exactly this kind of a picture of a city that is being renewed and is being transformed, and the whole world is, is gathering into the city. This is a picture of God's people and what God will do to bring glory to His people. Would you turn your Bibles, open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 60. Isaiah, chapter 60. If you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, uh, or you don't have a phone that has a Bible, we encourage you to grab uh, the Bibles provided in the pews in front of you. You may find this passage in our pews Bible, uh, in our pew Bibles, on page number 619. Here's God's word for us this morning as we 
are going to look at a picture of a glorious city. God's word from Isaiah chapter 60 says the following. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall, get, shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come to you with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish, first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you, for in my wrath, I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night there shall not be shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day. 
nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you have given great promises to your people. Father, we look forward for the day when these promises will be fully fulfilled. Until that day, give us hearts that would put our hope fully in you, in, in what you are planning to do. Father, we pray that you speak to your people a word of encouragement and a, a word of hope for your people gathered in your name in this place. We hope for you. Pray this in the name of Christ, for His glory and honor. Amen. Friends, this chapter that we have just read uh, marks a significant turn in the book of Isaiah. Uh, for the last few chapters, we have been working through the, the last part of, of the book, uh, the restored community. But as we have seen from chapter 56 to chapter 59, this restored community is still dealing with sin, with wandering away, with the temptation to, to revert back to the old ways. And, and God, for the last five, three chapters, has been challenging His people to come back to the truth, to, to consider the sinful ways, and, and to consider their ways of rebellion. So this morning, the, the, the tone of the chapter changes and shifts to give His people a picture of of a glorious city, of a radiant city, a city whose walls of protection will not be conventional walls of stones, bricks, or mortar, but walls of salvation and gates of praise, a city that will not need the sun or the moon for its light. Oh, friends, it doesn't take us long to recognize that this city is no normal city. This city is no physical city. The experiences of this new city will surpass all the Old Testament hopes, and may I say, even the New Testament experiences. And the, the hopes of the city will look forward to a day when even the sun and the moon will not be needed. And yet, this description of this city, of this glorious city, uses language and categories of the Old Testament. And as we look at this city, it's very tempting and easy for us to be bound or to, be, to fall down into just the, the physical descriptions and, and forget that the city that we have before us is a city that is described indeed in some Old Testament language, but it points forward to the future restoration of a city that is literally out of this world. Let's look at how God wants to raise up the hope of His people by describing them and by describing the restoration that he wants to bring, by painting before them a picture, 
of, a, of this glorious city. As we look at, at this picture of a glorious city, I'd like for us to consider four points that God is giving in this passage as He desires for His people and for their hopes to look ahead. First of all, God says, Awake, your light has come. That's the first point. Awake, your light has come. The second point that God is going to bring to them is the nations will come to your light. The third point that God wants to bring to them is the Lord will make His people majestic. And finally, the Lord will do this for His glory. Let's look at these four pictures, at these four steps, as God is trying to paint in the, in the minds of His people a picture of a glorious city that God is rebuilding and restoring. Let's look at the first point. Awake, your light has come. Literally, this is the, the very first few words of this, of this chapter in verse 1. Arise, shine. The call is to wake up. God has given in the book of Isaiah the call to wake up or to arise uh, before. He has given this call in chapter 26 when uh, God spoke to the remnant and he spoke to them saying, You who dwell in the dust, awake, sing for joy. In chapter 52, uh, God said to his people, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. God has called, been, called his people throughout the book to awake. And now again, God commands his people to awake, to arise. And coupled with the command to arise is the command to shine. In other words, the people God addresses are not only awakened to the light, but they are commanded to reflect the light that God has awakened them to. This morning, as we look at this command, this command has a significant turn for God's people because just a few verses earlier in chapter 59, the people confessed that they were lacking the light. Remember 59 verse 9? They said, we hope for light. But behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. This is what the people were confessing just a few verses prior to chapter 60. People recognized that light was far away from them. They were like blind people trying to figure out where to go. So on the backdrop of that, in verse 60, God says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. What is the light that has come upon God's people? It's not the natural light, nor the light that they were able to produce. Chapter 59 reminded us that the people could not come up with their light. They were looking around, and they couldn't do it by themselves. So now in chapter 60, God says, Shine for your light has come. But what is this light? If we keep looking at verse 1, it's the glory of the Lord having risen upon His people. This is the light. The glory of the Lord rising upon His people. It's a light of God's revelation. It's a light of His glorious self-disclosure, both in telling his people who he is, but also showing his people 
His mighty act of redemption, of rescue. This light of God shines upon an earth that is covered in darkness. In verse 2, God says, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The only light offered to an earth covered in darkness is the light of the glory of God shining upon His people. Friends, do we realize that the only light the church has is the light of the glory of God? A glory that shines not simply alone out there in space, a glory that shines specifically upon God's people. The only light we can offer people is not the light of being cool, of being up to speed on what's going on in the world, or being acceptable. It's not the light of being progressive. It's not even the light of being welcoming and nice to one another. The light that God speaks of is the light of His presence and His glory, of His character and His likeness among His people. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 to 6, the Apostle Paul speaks about this glory of the Lord shining upon His people in, in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, for us, the glory of God, the glory of God's revelation is completed. It was most clearly manifested in Jesus Christ. And it was continued to be manifested through the completion of God's revelation of His will, of who He is in the Word of God. The light that God has anticipated shedding is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus and in His Word. When we hear the gospel about Jesus, God works in a sovereign way to dispel the darkness in our own hearts by giving us the light of the glory of God in Jesus. Oh friend, to know Jesus and His salvation is to come to the light. As we have begun our service earlier this morning with, with the words of Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Isaiah 60, God is addressing His people as if the light has already come. I wonder, can this be said of you this morning? There are many people of whom it cannot be said that their light has come upon them. For they still walk and dwell in darkness. They have not yet seen the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. 
there might still some be some of those among us even this morning. God is not calling you to create your own light or to live by your own light. But God is calling you to awaken, to arise to the light that He wants to shine upon you through the message of Jesus. He is bringing and granting you the light through the proclamation of the gospel. Friend, you, if you'd like to know what this light is, and you'd like to respond to this light, I encourage you to ask God. Ask Him, God, bring light into my darkness. Bring me out of the darkness that I've been walking through. Ask God for this light. And just as God is able to bring that light through the proclamation of the gospel, God brings that light upon His people as they lift together the character of God, as they lift together who God is in, their, in our relationships, in our life together as a community, we put on display what the life of God is. But the great news of this announcement does not merely stop with announcing that the coming of the light has, has arrived. The announcement has a second part to this message. The message is that the nations will come to your light. Look at verse 3. When the light of the glory of God shines upon God's people, the nations will come to the light. And what is the light that attracts the nations? We might say it's the light of God. And that would be very true. The light of God and the glory of Jesus. That would be very true. But if we look more carefully to the way Isaiah describes this light that the nations come to, in verse 3, it's actually talking about the light of the people of God. Look at verse 3. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Notice to what light are the nations coming. You might expect it's the light of the world, but the light of the Lord, but it's actually the light of the people of God. This means that what the nations see is the light of God in the life of the people of God. The light of God in the, light of the, in the life of the people of God. The light of God becomes part of the people of God. God's light becomes visible in the life of God's people. And God is causing the nations to gather, to come to God's people as the light of God is reflected in the life of the people of God. In this text, God identifies himself with his people so that he speaks of his light as being the light of God. The visible manifestation of the light of God is the life of the people of God gathered together as they are arising, as they are being restored, as God is restoring his people, the light of God is made visible and manifest. Friends, do you consider that God has entrusted the visible manifestation of His light to be reflected through how we live together in a restored community? Friends, that's why we care so much, even about churches, sister churches around us that are struggling and going through a significant low time. And we desire to see God restore them. Because in the restoration of God's people, 
the light of God shines clearly. It's put on display. But we see in this passage that the nations will bring their possessions as an act of worship. In verse 5, God says, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. In verse 6, we see the details how the nations, when they gather, they don't, they don't just come empty-handed. They come in with everything they have. In verse 6, we see a gathering of luxurious and abundant trade coming into the walls of the city. A multitude of camels shall cover you. This, this beautiful picture of a city filled with camels. Camels in ancient times were the means by which merchants carried their produce. So to say that a, a multitude of camels shall cover uh, the city was a picture of a prosperous city, a picture where, where trade was flourishing. The markets were very healthy. Notice what these nations will bring on the camels. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news and the praises of the Lord. In other words, when these nations bring their wealth to the city of God, they are not interested merely in money. They're not coming there just to trade and get more wealthy. Oh, no, they're coming with good news. They're coming with the praises of God on their lips. They're bringing their wealth not to engage in trade, but to declare God's praise. Their generosity is an act not of selfish desire to, to grow even wealthier, but their generosity is an act of worship. There's no stingy attitude. They're coming to God's city, not out of personal interest, nor out of obligation. They're coming to God's city with praises to God. Friends, those who gather to God's people bring their possessions with them because their hearts are filled with praise. Some people may want to come to God with their money, with their checkbook, without their praises. You know, they think that if they just give money to the church, they'll be good spiritually. That's not true. Other people may come with praises but not bring their possessions with them. They want to keep it to themselves, and that doesn't work either. Here we see the nations come to the Lord, and they come with their possessions, and they bring the possessions to the Lord, and it's not just possessions, it's praises. Together they're coming with everything they got. But there's something else the nations are bringing. They're bringing their flocks and their rams. Again, think your picture, Old Testament language, Old Testament season. In the Old Testament, the flocks and the rams were used for sacrifices. So when these nations are gathering, they gather to bring sacrifices to the Lord. We should not assume here that the Old Testament sacrificial system ought to be reinstated. This was the Old Testament language for worshiping God at that time. The important part of verse 7 is that God says that when these nations bring their possessions as an act of worship, God will accept them on his altar. In other words, as the nations will come to God's people and will bring their possessions as an act of worship, God assures them that their worship will be accepted. But the nations come not only with their possessions, the nations also come with a longing for God. In verse 8, we have two pictures of how the nations will gather to God's people. And the pictures are put into questions. Notice verse 8. Who are these that fly like a cloud? 
and like doves to their windows. Now, these two pictures describe the gathering of the nations to God's people. Uh, the pictures of, of birds flying in such massive numbers that they are portrayed as, as flying like clouds. Friends, you can't see, you can't miss seeing the clouds, can you? When clouds are in the sky, you can't miss not seeing them. They're very visible. So God says, who are these that are flying in like the clouds? It's like the nations are gathered. You won't be able to miss them. But then there's another picture. It says, flying in like doves to their windows. This is another beautiful picture. Now, here's something about doves flying to windows. Doves fly only to the windows of their homes. Doves doves don't fly to, to just strange windows. They always fly to the windows when they come back home, to the windows that they know. So portray the nations flying as doves who are flying like doves to their windows is as if God is saying the nations are coming back to the Lord and it feels like coming home to the place they've always belonged to, the place they were destined for. Beautiful pictures that God is is putting in the minds of his people to recognize the nations have always belonged to God. Now, this is why this is important for Old Testament. We might think, and rightly so, so much of the Old Testament is is focused on on the nation of Israel, on the ethnic people of God described in in the nation of Israel. But, But we are actually told here that from the very beginning, even in the Old Testament, God's heart has always been to have an ultimate effect upon all the nations of the world. So that when the nations are described as coming in, they're not intruding. They're not intruding. They're coming home to the place where they've always belonged to, to the people of God. Then in verse 9, God assures his people that the nations will indeed put their hopes on God. Look at verse 9. For the coastlands shall hope for me. Oh, friends, this is a picture of what faith looks like. Faith is not merely accepting that something is true, like believing that God exists. Faith in God is that which puts our hope to be set on God. Real faith, saving faith, is that which changes our hope to set the object of our hope to be God himself. The faith that brings the nations to God is manifesting in a change of what we hope for in this life. Do we just hope for a better future? Do we just hope for more money? Do we just hope for a better lifestyle? Do we just hope for better relationships, for better fame? Ask yourself, what do you hope for in this life? Coming to God, oh friends, coming to God changes what we hope for in this life. Turning to God changes the object of our hopes, changing them from whatever dreams we might have, hopes we might have, changing them to hoping for God. Not just hope in God, hope for God. The coastlands are hoping for God. I wonder, is that, does that describe you? Would you say that you are part of 
of these nations who, who have set their hope for God? Because the nations are putting their hope in God, they're coming to God's people indeed feels like home. This is how every conversion to Christ ought to feel like. Like a homecoming because we have set our hope for the Lord. Then this, com- this c- gathering of the nations has more descriptions in this passage. And by the way, we're working through a number of subpoints in point number two, that the nations will be gathering to God's people. Here's, here's more about how the nations will gather to God's people. When they gather, the nations will serve God's people. Look at verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. Now, friends, this is, a, this is an awkward picture. And this needs to be explained. Throughout Isaiah, foreigners and kings have been a threat and a lure to Israel. The very reason why they needed walls was to protect themselves from foreigners. And here's what God says. When the nations come, the foreigners and their kings are actually going to be the means and the agents that will serve God's people to actually build the very walls that were supposed to keep a distance. This doesn't make sense. Walls were built for protection against foreign attack. But here, it's the foreigners who build the walls. And instead of paying tribute to foreign kings, God says that the foreign kings will be serving God's people. Such reversal of circumstances and rules is unheard of. Now, we should not think here of physical walls or physical gates. In verse 18, we are told that the walls are called salvation. So this is a picture here, dude. We're not talking about physical walls. I know that our, our president would like to talk about physical walls. And no matter what you think about that, this is not what Isaiah is talking about here. Isaiah is talking about the reality that those against whom God's people needed to protect are actually going to be brought in. And not only are they going to be brought in, they're going to be brought in to actually serve and build up the very city that once they were foreign to. The best illustration of this in the New Testament is the conversion of Saul. When God took someone who was attacking and a threat to the building up of the city of God, to the building up of the people of God, God not only brought that persecutor to be converted and brought into the fold of God, but God used him to be the means by which God would continue to build up his city so that more and more will be brought in to the realm of God's salvation. Why would God bring about such a change of circumstances that God would would bring in the foreigners and their kings to be part of the city of God and to be the builders of the city of God? In verse 10, God says, For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy upon you. In other words, this change of circumstances, this is is no luck. This change of circumstances, this is no human strategy. This change of circumstances is called by God. It's caused by God. In the past, God was wrathful towards his people because of their sin. In wrath, God has struck his people. But the great news is that the same God who struck them 
in punishment is a God who's able now to bring them in such a way that it's just off the charts. It is the, mere, the mercy of God that turns foreigners and kings to be part of God's people and have them contribute to the rebuilding of God's city. It's not our gimmicks. It's not our strategy that brings about this change. It's the sheer mercy of God. Friends, I wonder if you realize that, that all of us here this morning, with the exception of Art Coleman, all of us this morning are part of the foreigners that have been brought in. And we're building the walls. Every time you share the gospel, every time you love one another, every time you sacrifice yourself and of what you have and what you, what you own to, to give to, to others, every time you put others above you out of love for God, you're building the wall. We are wall builders. God has called foreigners who have not been part of the people of God in the Old Testament to come into, into his people, and we are building the wall. We, every day, we're building this wall of salvation. Membership into God's people, here's something else. Membership into God's people is a commitment to serve God's people. And it does not matter if someone comes in from a very high position in society, like kingship, or from a very low position of society, or from a very far position in society. We're all called to serve the people whom God is restoring. When God is bringing the nations in, He's calling them to serve God's people and to contribute to the building of the city of God that God is restoring. Then he goes on to say, the gathering of the nations will be ongoing. Look at the imagery in verse 11. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. Now to leave gates open 24-7 was not wise from the standpoint of, um, of security in any city of antiquity. After all, even for us today, none of us leave the doors open 24-7 right? It's not safe. But the new city that God is, is restoring and rebuilding will never have its gates shut. It will fear no threat from any enemy. The keeping of the gates open 24-7 is not only a sign of, of security, but the keeping of the gates open 24-7 had a different purpose as well. It was so that the gathering of the nations will be constant. So that the gathering of the nations will happen continually. But then there's a caution in verse, in verse 12. The nations that refuse to serve God's people will perish. Look at verse 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now, in other words, there's no neutral grounds towards the people of God. Nations either come to serve God's people or they, re- they will perish. Why such a stern Warning. I love how Alec Motir, he says, gives this beautiful explanation. He says, Zion alone is the place where divine wrath has become divine compassion. In other words, the people of God is the one place, the exclusive place, where God had changed from wrath to compassion. Nowhere else, in no other city, 
have we seen the wrath of God manifested and turned into His compassion? And of course, we have seen this manifested most clearly in the salvation that God provided 2,000 years ago in the earthly city of Jerusalem when the Son of God was led outside the city walls on a, call, on a hill called Golgotha so that upon Him, upon Jesus, the full wrath of God would be poured out for the sins of God's people for the sins of all those among the world who turn to God, who would return away from their sins and turn to God so that through the death of Jesus, God could show His manifold and full compassion for sinners who would be declared righteous out of the sheer mercy of God. Everything that God does to His people in this chapter is an outflow of His compassion towards His people and of the change that He experienced from wrath to compassion. Now, friends, let me be very clear. This verse, verse 12, has nothing to do with modern-day politics and with whether or not America should support modern-day Israel. Zion, in this chapter, is not referring to modern-day Jerusalem, but to the people that God is rebuilding from every nation as they come to the light of God as manifested more clearly in Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, is there anything in you that causes you to be resisting God or His people? In this chapter, God has made it very clear that those who turn to Him turn to serve His people. And His people are not just modern-day Jews. His people is, is everywhere, every gathering where, where people gather in the name of Jesus, where God is rebuilding His people as pictured through this glorious city. Are you resistant to serve God's people? There's no following God without becoming part of His people and serving God's people. That's why, dear friends, even when we prepare people who turn to God in, in repentance and faith and get ready to be baptized, we, in part of that preparation for baptism, is not only to make sure they understand the gospel, not only to make sure that they, they have they have evidence of, of God's grace in, in their lives, but that they understand that becoming, or becoming a follower of Jesus is becoming a member of God's people and committing to serve God's people. There is no following God without also joining, committing to serving God's people. All these, friends, these lists of, of things that describe the nations is a long list of characteristics of what will happen when the nations will gather to God's people. But then there's a third point that we see in this passage. From verses 15 to 22, God will make His people majestic. In this third point, the focus changes from what the nations will do when they gather to be part of God's people to what God will do to His people when He is going to restore them. So from verses 15 to 22, we see a list of promises that God will make. And these promises, some of them are Old Testament language. Some of them are just beyond what we can imagine. Look at verses 15 through 22. There's a, there's a before and after in verse 15. Verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through. In other words, this is the picture of God's people when they have rebelled against Him. 
forsaken, hated, no one passing through. Who brought that about? God did because of their sin and rebellion. And yet, God didn't stop there. He turned it around and said, instead of being forsaken, hated, and, and, and abandoned, no one passing through, the change is that people are, God says, I'm going to be making you a majestic people, a joy from age to age. Such a change of destiny would make a fantastic story. Not just a, a story, but a future reality for all those who belong to God. The future of God's people is a future that's majestic, a future that's full of joy, and a joy that will be from age to age, a joy that will not end. But friends, on this side of heaven, we may experience many tribulations. But what awaits for God's people is incomparable to the experiences that we have here now. For some of us this morning, we may feel fine ourselves in, 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 a, in a sense of abandonment, a sense of, of forsakenness. But what God promises to His people in the future reality is a, is a, is a majesty that, that cannot be compared to our past or even our current situation. God will make His people to be greatly cared for. We see a picture in verse 16 of, of the people of God as if they're infants being nursed and cared for by nations and by their kings. Now, again, this is a picture. You know, when an infant comes into a family, especially when the first infant comes into a family, everything about that family changes. When they eat, when they sleep, when mom and dad go out, if they can go out, everything changes, right? Because the attention is on that infant. And it's as if God is saying, listen, when I'm going to restore you, when I'm going to make you so majestic, it's as if the nations and the kings will wrap all their attention around you. Like you would be the center of the attention of the whole world because they will care for you. This is a picture, a picture of the, of the great care, of the worldwide care that God will, will bring about to his people. In verse 17, there's another picture of better possessions. God gives for instead of pears. Instead of bronze will be gold. Instead of iron will be silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. You know, imagine here you're building a house. You're, re you're repairing something at the house. And you recognize, you know what? Instead of putting just the normal stuff, the default materials that I could use, let me go all out and let me, let me put in the, the best updates, upgrades that I can have. Let me make this house, let me make the upgrades of this house just to, to skyrocket. So instead of having just a normal house, that would do well. You would have a house with, with everything upgraded in it. It's as if God is saying, listen, when I'm going to be restoring my people, everything will get better. Everything. That's why these, these four pairs of instead of. And then even, even the overseers, listen, the overseers will be changed to peace and righteousness. Even Remember the, the leadership of, of God's people in chapter 56? They were following poor leaders, leaders who were like silent dogs. God says, I'm going to change your overseers. They're going to be peace and righteousness. And then God, look at look to the next verse. God will give his people a new protection. Instead of violence, instead of desolation, there's now walls of salvation and walls of, and gates of praise. This means that salvation and praise 
will be the protection against the enemy. In, in verse 19, there's a new light instead of, instead of the sun and the moon. And this gets, this, this gets quite out of this world. Friends, we cannot imagine a world without the sun and the moon. Life would stop in this universe if the sun and the moon would be taken out. That's how basic, particularly the sun, is to our existence. And here's what God is saying. Listen, I am going to give you a new light. Your sun and your moon, I will take their place. I will be at the center of the universe for you. I will be the, the center of the sustenance. I will, be, I will be everything you need for your existence. Instead of needing natural light, God himself will be the source of this light forever and ever. And then in verse 20, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And then in verse 21, and God will make all his people to be righteous and will give them an eternal inheritance. In, in verse 21, all will be righteous. I love how one commentator said, God shows his glory when he makes his sinful people righteous because they have no ability to do this themselves. The fact of their godly lives proves to be the greatest attraction to their God that the world has ever witnessed. And then God promises that they shall possess the land forever. Again, don't think here merely physical land. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the land was the most visible and clear way of talking about their inheritance. In other words, their inheritance that God promises will be forever and ever. Oh, friends, this is what God does, what God promises, as he promises people that he will make them majestic. And to close this, this promise, we get a signature. And the fourth point is, the Lord will accomplish this for his glory. This chapter ends with an important line. And it's like a signature line. Look at verse 22. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Friends, it's as if the Lord is putting his stamp or his signature, his John Hancock, on this promise and say, listen, the one who makes these promises is the Lord. I, I am he, and I will bring this. I will hasten it in its time. Why is the Lord doing that? What's the Lord's motivation? In, the, in verse 21, he says that I might be glorified. Oh, friends, this chapter began describing that the light the Lord shines upon his people is the light of his glory being manifested upon his people. And now at the end of the chapter, God says, here's why I'm bringing all this, so that my glory will be displayed. One of the key characteristics that the Reformation rediscovered about God is that he works in a sovereign way to bring glory to himself. This is one of the great truths that the Reformation has rediscovered, that the church in the Middle Ages has lost sight of. That God is not waiting for people to get better in order to make them better. But that God chooses sovereignly to take people who cannot make themselves better and he makes them better he wakes them to the light of his glory he gives them the light of his glory 
And then he says, shine. And I'm going to make the nations come to you. I'm going to make him successful. I'm going to make this, this worldwide evangelistic campaign successful. They will come. They will gather to you. They will serve you. They will serve me. And they will contrib- be contributors to the building up of God's city. And I will make the city to be majestic. God is a God who chooses to bring light to those who have been in darkness. And God does it sovereignly to display His glory. Friends, the book of Hebrews describes our coming to Christ as a coming to the city of the living God. Hebrews 12:22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Friends, when we become Christians... We are entering into our spiritual reality that is described as a city, the city of the living God. And the life of this new city has the power to transform our lives and the lives of others around us. And the life of the city calls us to, to integrate everything that we have, everything that we are, into the building up of this great, glorious city. Friends, we don't gather to God apart from gathering to the city where the people of God are. Pursuing God is lived out in the community of God's people. That's why those who say, I want to pursue God, but I don't want to commit to God's people, have not yet understood that God designed to show His glory and His light through the life of His people. That's why when someone turns to the Lord and desires to to make a public profession of their faith, we care deeply that they understand they're, they're coming not only to God, they're coming to God's people. That's why when we think about how we live together as a people, as a church, when we think about membership as a church, it's not just something extra we add to the, to the Christian life or something that we add to the, what the Bible says. No, we are literally trying to put into practice this truth that coming to God is coming to God's people. And that the light of God is reflected in the world through the light that God's people shed together, through their life together. Oh, friends, every faithful church, I love how one pastor said it, every faithful church is a gateway into the future of the world. I love that. Every faithful church is a gateway into the future of the world. Why? Because it's a display. It's a glimpse. It's a glimpse of the glory that God is preparing for all eternity. Now, do we do that glimpse perfectly? No. There are often shadows. There are often dark spots mixed with that glimpse of, of glorious reality. But friends, the light we're called to have is the light of God as we live together as a community. Awake, God says. Your light has come. The nations will come to your light. The Lord will make his people majestic. And the Lord will do this for his glory. Let us pray. Father, we want to praise you and thank you for the sovereign way in which you have determined to take sinners who deserve your wrath, to take those who have turned their backs against you, to take those to whom you have poured out your punishment, and yet, O Lord, you have turned and showed compassion 
towards your people and have chosen to make them into a glorious city. And you have chosen to make them into a people who, who display and portray the light of your glory to the nations. And Father, we praise that you are the God who, who causes the nations to come and flock to the light of your people. Father, we pray. We pray that we would be a people who faithfully represent, who faithfully acknowledge, who faithfully display the light of the glory of Christ in our midst. Father, we pray that, that you would continue to perfect us, that you continue to make us righteous in your image and likeness. Father, until that day comes when we will be made righteous in, in, in full, without any blemish or spot, Father, we pray that we might, we might continue to cling to the light that you have given to us. Father, we pray that we might continue to, to draw our affections to be erected and changed to be fully on you. Father, we pray that you would make your light so clear among us that the nations will come for the sake of the glory of your great name. Father, we acknowledge there's no other throne, there's no other power, there's no other greater city that calls us to bow down and worship you than, the, than what you are building in your people and through your people. Father, we pray that our worship of you be a worship that's congregationally orchestrated so that indeed the world may see through our life together that you and you alone are worthy of all worship and praise. In the name of Christ we pray.